So, here we are. It's the first Sunday of Advent, the first, Sunday, first day in December. It's a countdown to Christmas, celebrating the birth of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I definitely feel the tension of this month, because Advent itself is about waiting and pausing and anticipating. But what actually happens is we start celebrating Christmas. Parties and carol services happen throughout December. The shops switch over to Christmas by Halloween at the latest, if not before. And there's this immense pressure to spend money and celebrate lavishly. And there's no real time for Advent unless we choose it. Don't get me wrong, I love Christmas. I'm up here in my stage one Christmas jumper this morning. Um, But what about Advent? So for our Advent series this year, we chose, um, with Sarah at St. Stephen's as well, to follow the lectionary. So the Church of England, you may or may not know this, has a pattern of readings for every day of the year, and they run on a three-year cycle. So we thought we'd join in with the Anglican tradition this year as a way of consciously acknowledging that we're part of something wider than what happens in this building. What actually happened it turns out, was an administrative error, and we're following the readings for the wrong year. (laughs) But the heart was there, even if we haven't quite pulled it off. (laughs) So, we begin today with a psalm of lament. We're reading Psalm 25. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, Lord, and teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my saviour, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. He he guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful toward those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways they should choose. They will spend their days in prosperity and their descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, but only he will release my feet from the snare. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how numerous are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me, because my hope, Lord, is in you. Deliver Israel, O God, from all their troubles. So lament is a bold act. 
particularly at this time of year, which is so associated with joy and festivity and merriment. But there is faith in lament as well, because as much as we are declaring that all is not as it should be, we also come in hope that God is working to make all things right and new. I find myself in lament quite a lot at the moment. Lament for those in our church family who are sick. Lament for broken relationships in my family, for the state of our political landscape, for the state of our planet. All is not as it should be. And something that catches particularly on my heart in lament is how shame is a weight that too many of us are carrying and are crippled by. And that's what we're going to spend some time thinking about this morning. So the idea of shame is something that is threaded through our reading this morning. Do not let me be put to shame, in verse 3. No one who hopes in you is ever put to shame, in verse 4. And then at the end again, do not let me be put to shame. And what encourages me about this is that no matter what state my heart is in, no matter how deep in shame I feel, I can come to God with it and expect and look for his help. That is some good news right there this morning. We can always come to God and look for his help. But sometimes that feels impossible, doesn't it? Because the work of the enemy is to keep us in shame and to keep us in the dark and out of the light. Because freed people are able to go into the darkness with the light and free other people. That is part of the kingdom work we are called to. Freed people, free people. Shame is a matter of identity, and that is how it's different to guilt. I think we often blur the two, but guilt is often about things that we've done or haven't done. And there's quite often quite a practical solution for guilt. We can apologize to restore a broken relationship, and we can complete a task that we've left undone. For example, if I stole some chocolate from Caroline, I would feel guilty about that. <laughs> Caroline says no. Um, I would have taken something that doesn't belong to me. I would have hurt her because she doesn't have her chocolate anymore. And I imagine that she would feel sad that I'd taken something without talking to her first because our friendship is important and valuable enough that we can be generous even with our chocolate. But for me, that would be guilt upon guilt in that scenario. But if I went to her and I apologized and I asked for forgiveness and probably replaced the chocolate, I could process my guilt in a healthy way and begin to restore the relationship. But on the other hand, if my guilt turned into an identity statement, I'm broken and I'm dirty because I stole from my friend, then that becomes something entirely different. That turns into shame. Caroline might forgive my actions, but she can't change the identity and the mindset that I've taken on. And at that point, what I'd need to receive is healing rather than forgiveness. Guilt is about action and needs forgiveness. And I think shame is about identity, and that needs healing. And the weapons that we have in our hands to deal with shame are truth and love. And thankfully, we have a God who deals in both. So given the season, it only seems appropriate to have a look at the Christmas story. I have an Advent devotional that I love to return to every few years. It's called Silence and Other Surprising Invitations of Advent by Enuma Okoro. 
And rather than focusing on the main players in the story, she begins by looking at Elizabeth and Zechariah, the parents of John the Baptist. In, in the introduction to the first week of Advent, she says, the Advent story we associate with the joy of Christmas actually begins with deep sorrow and longing. But thankfully, in the kingdom of God, there is always more to the story than meets the eye. So in Luke chapter 1, we read that Elizabeth and Zechariah are childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. And this would have been a matter of shame for them. The point of marriage was to have children, to continue the family line and to make sure you had someone to look after you when you grew old. And the text tells us that the shame would have fallen on Elizabeth. Apparently, she was unable to conceive. There's no aspersions cast on Zechariah here. But God responds in love. An angel of the Lord comes to Zechariah in the temple and says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Zechariah questions the truth of the angel's words and so is struck dumb for the duration of the pregnancy. Elizabeth, however, recognizes God's truth in the whole situation says that he, and says that he has shown favor and taken away her disgrace. Before this point, she would have lived in disgrace, away from grace, and carried that as shame for being barren and for knowing that the family line was coming to an end. But God brought healing in the most wondrous way. He brought a baby boy. Approximately six months later, another branch of the family is dealing with shame and a surprise pregnancy. As we can read in Matthew's story, Mary was pledged to be married and she was already pregnant. So in a culture where children were there to inherit the family business and continue the family line, you didn't want any questions over the parentage of your firstborn. So Joseph, as Mary's almost husband, would have been quite within his rights under the law to shame her publicly for being pregnant before they were, mar before they were properly married. In his kindness, he had planned not to disgrace her, but to divorce her quietly. But instead, we have another angel and another plot twist. The angel of the Lord comes and tells Joseph that Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit, that she will have a boy, and he is to be called Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. And he will save the world from its sin. That is a truth bomb right there. And Joseph receives the truth and he responds in love. He brings Mary home and claims her child as his own. But if we turn back to Luke's narrative, it tells us that at this point in the story, Mary then hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea to go and stay with Elizabeth. I've always felt that this was a bit of a family maneuver, you know, like, oh no, Mary's in trouble, let's send her out of town until the gossip dies down. Because Mary must have had questions about her whole pregnancy situation. She was brave enough and spicy enough to say yes to God's audacious question to her, to be responsible for carrying Jesus and bringing him into the world. This speaks to me of unusual strength rather than the meek and mild mother of our Christmas carols. But still, she must have had questions about what the rest of her life might look like. 
It must have been deeply reassuring to her to hear the truth from Elizabeth when she arrived at Elizabeth's home. She might have left home with gossip and whispers on her tail, but she meets joy and freedom on arrival. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and cries out that she is deeply blessed because the mother of her Lord has come to visit her. She offers Mary the gift of truth, and Mary responds in love. She responds by worshipping God in an amazing song called the Magnificat. I could go into that, but we're looking at that in a few weeks' time, so that would be spoilers. But shame has been allowed no foothold for Mary because she has received both love and truth from God and her community. And I think this is something that characterizes the whole ministry of Jesus. His first miracle is at a wedding in Cana where he turns water into wine and saves his family from the shame of showing insufficient hospitality. When he heals the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, he brings physical healing by stopping her bleeding, but he also heals her of the shame of being ceremonially unclean, of being untouchable for all those years. And I've spoken before about Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. They meet in a situation of shame because they're a Jew and a Samaritan and the two are never supposed to meet or talk There are man and woman alone together, which alone would have been enough to give rise to gossip. The woman is out alone at midday because she is considered too shameful to be able to get water at cooler and more reasonable times of day with everyone else. Yet rather than compounding her shame, Jesus sets her free. He tells her the truth about her situation and he calls her into something better. Jesus, truth, and love go hand in hand. And this is something that we get to live out to day by day. There's a familiar passage from 1 Corinthians 13 that tells us all the things that love can do. It is patient and kind. It rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. But if you notice, it doesn't tell us that love will set us free. Because Jesus says that only truth will set us free. Law alone is insufficient and cruel because it does not allow for love and compassion. When Jesus met the woman who had been caught in adultery, she was about to be stoned because that is what the law of Moses demanded for her crime. But Jesus saves her life by confronting the Pharisees with the fact that none of them is without sin. The law alone condemns, but love allows for a second chance. But love alone is too permissive. If we we return to my chocolate stealing analogy, if Caroline found out that I had stolen her chocolate and then just told me it was no big deal, I would probably continue in that cycle of stealing her chocolate. My heart and behavior wouldn't change. Love and grace and the work of Jesus on the cross are not a free pass for us to behave however we like. They're a call to own our identity as children of God who get to live and love and run free of shame. We get to carry light and hope to people who are desperate for it. That is our privilege and our joy. We get to tell other people that they are children of God and they are loved beyond measure. 
we get to let our imaginations run wild with the story of a God who is so big and so great that he became a tiny baby boy in the middle of a country under a hostile occupation just for us. This Advent, let's commit to dealing with our stuff, to helping each other undo the shackles of shame and return to the wonder of this story. Our God came for us. He didn't mess around. Unhealed shame creates roots of bitterness that strangle the life right out of us. Shame must be healed and redeemed. If we perhaps think of Germany after World War I, the country was left in shame and defeat and a huge amount of debt. The country was broken and empty of spirit. And into that void came Hitler. He took the unredeemed shame of a nation and twisted it into the core of Nazism. He took a lost people who were looking for a cause and told them who the enemy was. He gave them an external focus for their internal blame and their shame. And history tells us what happened next. As we see nationalism and racism and white supremacy on the rise again in sort of different pockets here and in the States, I find myself asking the question, where is shame at play? I don't know what the answer is, but I think the question is worth asking. Where do we need to bring truth and love in those situations? Shame must be healed in ourselves, in our cities, and in our nations. It cannot be left to fester and rot. So how do we do this then? What does this look like? Each of us probably has a natural tendency towards truth or love. We might instead use the words challenge and invitation. I think... Generally, for all of us, maybe for me personally, and I'm projecting, I think we tend more towards love because it's nice to be cozy and loving and invitational. But nice doesn't make disciples. Nice doesn't see lives transformed. Sometimes what people need is a nice pastoral shove in the right direction. If someone was struggling with their mental health, I could sit and just pat them on the head nicely, or I could encourage them to phone a doctor, and I could go with them to a counselling appointment, because that's love and that's truth. The truth is that it's not okay to remain in that place of pain, but I can do that journey in love, towards healing, towards life transformation. Pure challenge doesn't work on its own either. I think pure challenge just leads to stress. Pure invitation leads us to comfort and no movement. Without either of those things, we don't go anywhere. We stay right where we are, deep in shame. But I think both together is where the magic happens. And to rob shame of its power, we bring it into the light. Jesus absolutely did the hard work with this. He went to the cross and came through death and destroyed it. Because of him, sin doesn't get to win in our lives. Addiction doesn't get to win. Whether that's sex or alcohol or the thrill of the buy now button of online shopping. Anything that gets us high and isn't Jesus is something that needs to be brought to the foot of the cross, brought into the light and dealt with. 
none of this needs to hold us in shame because we have a savior who knows it all anyway and he wants the best for us. In really practical terms, I think we can do this by being accountable to someone. Being in a twos and threes group, a transformation group, discipleship group, whatever you want to call it, the name literally doesn't matter. But that space of accountability is where you get to love and be loved, where you get to tell the truth and receive the truth. It's a space of pure light where you can bring anything out of the darkness and rob it of its power over you. It's a space where we can be fully known, warts and all, because we've all got stuff. None of us look like Jesus yet, but it's so good to have help on the way, and it's so good to help others on their way too. There's a page on our website which tells you exactly how you can do this, um, and we're working on making a resource that you can take away and keep in, keep in your handbag, your pocket, whichever, if that's what you prefer. To give you an overview, you get together with one or two people once a week or once a fortnight. You challenge each other to read a decent chunk of the Bible between meetings. You pray for each other and for each other's people of peace. You ask each other tough questions about your joys and your struggles, about how you're using your time and your resources, about what God is saying and doing in your life and if or how you're responding to it. It takes about an hour it's really simple, but it's transformational. Shame gets no foothold because you're in a rhythm and a discipline of coming into the light. I notice the difference when I've not met up with Anya for a while. I feel noticeably darker and heavier. I've mentioned Anya and our accountability relationship more than once in this context, but I don't know if I've ever shared this part of our story. We didn't know each other particularly well when we started being accountable to one another. I'd only just moved back to Coventry and I felt a nudge from God to ask her if she was up for doing accountability with me. And we just went from there. We committed to it. We were properly open with each other from the very start. And our friendship came from there rather than the other way around. If you're looking for an accountability partner, my recommendation to you is that you just find someone and start. You don't need to discern it for months, wait until the wind is blowing in the right direction, you've had seven signs from the Lord and a visit from an angel. Start moving and God will go with you. If we go back to the psalm we read at the beginning, God's heart towards us is to relieve our afflictions, comfort our sorrows, to teach us and to shape us. When we take refuge in him, in his light and love and truth, we can know freedom from shame and we can help each other on the journey. We don't have to pretend that all is as it should be. We can lament what is broken even as we pray and hope for healing and redemption. Because it's logical, really. How can we pray for something to be better if we don't first acknowledge that it's broken? I can pray for my family whilst holding all of my pain precisely because I've acknowledged that there is immense pain there. At Advent, we tell the story of how Jesus has come and we look forward to the time when he will come again and wipe every tear from our eyes. 
It's the seasonal embodiment of the now and not yet kingdom that we live in. So let's try and dwell in that tension a little bit this year. Before we get distracted by nativities and sparkles and fairy lights, let's wait for a little while. With these women and their surprise pregnancies, let's wait in this bit of the story. Let's not rush it. Let's try and deal with our stuff this year.